But the focus was to encourage women to become angel investors. That's Yemi Kerry, a co-founder of the angel network Rising Tide Africa. However, on the investment side, it was difficult for us to find those female founders. You need money, you need time, you need a number of swings at back. You kind of need to keep going. For them to be able to invest, they must understand what they're doing. So it's important that they do this education. And if they don't, we will not grow the pool of angel investors. Despite research showing that female founders outperform their male peers, startups with a solo female founder or an all-female founding team raised a mere 2% of all the funding in Africa last year. There is a huge gender funding gap. How do we close it? This episode is the second of a five-episode series on gender lens investing. Co-hosted by Eloho Omame, founding partner of First Check Africa, an early-stage fund backing female-led startups. Each episode of this series will explore a different level of the fundraising value chain. In this episode, we're exploring angel networks with Yemi Kerry, co-founder of Rising Tide Africa, a women-oriented angel network in Nigeria. This series is created under the ScaleX project, co-designing solutions to close the early stage gender financing gap in Africa, an initiative of Make IT in Africa. Make IT in Africa promotes entrepreneurship and innovation ecosystems across Africa for green and inclusive development. The program is implemented by the German development agency GIZ on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development. Before we start, we have one small favor to ask. If you enjoy the show and want to support the content that we create, please hit that subscribe button. It only takes a second, but it will mean a lot to us if you do. I started off Rising Tide with Didi Noli Dezien, and it was just an offshoot of what our experience was at the Lagos Angel Network where we were introduced into angel investing and over several months we began to notice a, a pattern a pattern that first of all in the room the number of women that used to come for the investments were reducing and then also we weren't seeing uh, women come and if women came to pitch um, it would be as a support for the the co-founder co or HR or something like that. There was a particular day that there was a young lady that um, came in. She had she was in the health sector and she had this fantastic product, but she couldn't pitch. And so we took her out for uh, a bit, about two months thereabouts. And what we were doing was uh, carrying her to all the types of different places that we were going and making sure that, you know, so if I saw a lover in the room, I would say, oh, she's a, she's a founder, uh, please, be, um, you know, tell, tell her about your product. And she began to, the, the questions and everything, and she began, you know, she began to have that confidence and certainty because it was different people. And so by the time we, uh, you know, brought her back to pitch, everybody wanted to invest. And so we knew that we had something. About a year later, that was in 2017, we decided that we needed to formalize um what we were doing which was predominantly mentoring in nigeria at the time the female founders were few and far between and so that's what really started off rising tide principally mentoring and coaching before we started to layer it with investment and education you talked about mentorship and then you know started to layer the education the deal flow so what does it look like in its sort of fully formed version of itself today we have 34 investment invest in portfolio companies and we do a lot of mentoring for the founders that we believe we require it or those that come to us we also do what we call the mentoring clinic 
where we open up mentorship to female founders um, across the continent. I, I think so far we've mentored about 65 women in 11 countries. So we do our portfolio companies, then we do a one-off. The mentoring clinic allows us two things. First of all, it creates awareness about rising tide across the continent. The second thing, it acts as a filter for us to start to see um, female, female founders uh, that, that need support and who we might invest in um, at a later stage. So Yemi, could you talk a bit about the um, capital piece then and, and how that plays in? It sounds as if the original, the very sort of original kernel for Rising Tide Africa was around a mentoring story and supporting a founder. So do you sort of think about the mentoring piece and the education piece as Rising Tide, at Rising Tide today as the wedge into the capital? Or do you have founders as well who might come in, you know, with investment first and then really view you as a, as a resource over time post-investment? How, how, how does that dynamic work in, in practice on both sides? At Rising Tide, we have four pillars. We call it the mind, mentoring, investment, education, and networking. And as a member of Rising Tide, we're 97 members now. Um, as a mentor, member of Rising Tide, you are to select one or two pillars that you want to join. And it's voluntary, but you know, it's one of the, the uh, prerequisites for joining Rising Tide because you have to give your time. The mentoring I've told you about, the education part came as an offshoot of the patterns we began to see with female founders when they started pitching to us. When we started off the investment arm and started really forming that, that um, pillar, we began to notice a certain pattern. I would say knowledge that if the female founders had, we would have invested in them or would have shared their investments. And um, based off of that, the members curated an accelerator program. It's a five-week accelerator program. So it's the education piece is to help us to, you know, get them investment ready. Even if they're not, if we're not going to invest, we are able to share their decks. We're able to, you know, refine them to such a point that they are confident that they can go and meet other investors. So it it's also serves as a, a pipeline for us. However, on the investment side, in 2017, 2018, it was difficult for us to find those female founders. Um, either because they didn't know about Rising Tide or we didn't know where to find them. But as we did the first and second investments in, in female founders in 2017, by 2018, people started to you know, share deals with us. Our member community grew, decided to refer um, um, deals to us. And so it is also a combination of those that go through the mentoring education, as well as those that approach us directly, either through referrals or through members. Can you speak a bit about, about how, what proportion of your members are investing and maybe a little bit about, you know, the, the check sizes you all are writing, etc.? So, you know, um, the focus for Rising Tide is twofold. First of all, to, you know, try and close the gender funding gap. The second one is to encourage women to become Indian invest investors so that they can see it as another asset class. And in doing this, we had to ensure that our ticket size per head is, is affordable for the, women, the uh, women investors because they in themselves 
um, a lot of them have never even heard about angel investing. Some are just seeing, understanding the ecosystem. Um, some of them are risk averse. You know, so we, we, we began to we have began to study the, the patterns. When you are joining, we say at the time and it was three thousand um, dollars um, per annum. Our ticket sizes, averagely over the last four or five years, is is um, thirty thirty to thirty five thousand minimum that we've done, and then the maxed one is two hundred and eighty nine thousand because there were a lot of women in, in investing. In terms of the number of women, averagely eight nine per deal, averagely. But in twenty twenty three, everything just dipped. We're doing a survey. Um, why they're not investing. From the survey, we found out, um, I mean, very few say that we, we the deals are not of interest. A large percentage was um, disposed, lack of disposable income because of the economy. The other percentage was they wanted to see, um, they wanted us to justify this asset class. In other words, um, I've invested in 2017, what's going on? You know, so they want to see exits. So those are really typically the reasons why they haven't invested. One of the things you started talking about um, as you shifted the conversation towards the investment side of, of, of Rising Tide was you talked about a lot of women in general um, being new to the venture asset class and new to angel investing. And one of the things that you wanted to do you know, was close the gender funding gap, but secondly, encourage more women to, to invest. So it's, a, it's an interesting question. I suppose, in that I, I say to myself, there's also, in order to be a great angel investor, you need money, <laughs> you need time, because yes. you're not going to make those home runs in year one, and probably not, you might, but <laughs> yes. you, also need, you also need some, you know, you need a, a number of kind of, you know, a number of swings at bat, right? So you kind of need to keep going. You can't do one deal a year, yeah. you know, for four years. I yes. think that those are the ones that are going to return your capital. So it's very interesting that you, you know, when you talk about, you know, some of the dynamics around perhaps why you might have seen that dip, them that you talk about is, is liquidity, which leads me to my specific question, which is that when you were talking about, you know, those objectives of for Rising Tide, closing the gender funding gap and um, encouraging more women to invest, is there also an education piece that is for the investors or is the education primarily focused on the founder? We do deliver that um, because, you know, for them to be able to invest or to even mentor, they must understand what they're doing. And, you know, these are women from diverse backgrounds, although well experienced, but, you know, they, they, not, not all they want to understand the ecosystem. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Some of them invest because others are investing. Um, so we do, uh, you know, we do an onboarding, you know, introduction to angel investing for, for, um, for those that, that come in. So we do one a quarter. So that's what the networking um, and membership um, pillars do to education for the, for the investors. What are we looking for, really? How do we look at exits? What it really is an exit? How can you tell? If a founder is going to be successful, all of those things that we've learned over time, we either get people to come and share at an event or we have a master class or, you know, we discuss amongst ourselves. So, so we do a lot of investor um, education. Otherwise, they'll be just they're totally lost. That's a really interesting point. I think maybe if we can probe a little bit deeper, like I, I just threw out everything you were saying, think about this like chicken and egg question about like where the intervention needs to start right and we hear so often about well 
you know, downstream, right? If there's not enough angel investors to fund women-led initiatives, not as many are going to get to a certain point where they are able to raise a seed round and on and on and on, right? And I guess from the other side of the value chain also, if there's not, you know, LPs investing in fund managers, women fund managers, they're not, there's not going to be as many. So how, how do you just generally think about, I mean, it, it sounds like you're kind of burning the candle at both ends, right? Like working on the deal flow and the mentorship, but also the, the angel training. Is, is that a necessary component to how to achieve this goal of closing the, the gender gap? Or it sounds like you can't start at one end or the other. You have to do both. But I'm, I'm curious to know how you think about that. You, you, you really have to do both, right? Um, generally, if I want to stereotype, women are risk averse. And some will only put money if they see one, two, three people put money. And what, what we decided to do was to encourage members to start doing the due diligence. Because by doing due diligence and asking all those questions and being in that closer uh, group, they let go of their lack of knowledge. And by the time they have finished with the due diligence, they gain some knowledge. And they, they see that, oh, this thing is not rocket science. I just need to be able to look at this, ensure this, ensure that. You know, and that's one of the ways in which we give them the hands-on education. Otherwise, they would not be involved. And if you're not involved, you wouldn't want to invest. So it's important that they, they do this education. And if they don't, we will not grow the pool of angel investors and qualified or high standard or, you know, um, angel investors. We won't have that. So, for instance, the, um, the curriculum for the accelerator, it was developed by members of Rising Time, right? So each person took, they, they took an aspect, pulled in three or four others that are in that same field, tried to say, okay, this is what we look for. And they developed that curriculum. We try and look for different ways of sharing that experience, sharing the ed education and making them involved in the, in the, in the build of Rising Tide. Can you speak a bit on that around, you know, how you all think about um, your investment I guess, investment approach or investment model. On the portfolio side, or at least even on the deal flow side or the pipeline side, all the companies that you're investing in, female-led startups, and I suppose different people define female-led in different ways. So perhaps you can talk about you know, that investment approach and ultimately what that means. It's been a journey. Like I said, when we started, we're not seeing the women. Uh, philosophy was female-owned. Then we now said, look, few and far between, what if they're female-led? Your, your CEO of, of the company and things like that, wouldn't that be a criteria for us to even build that CEO to a point that, you know, um, she's able to raise investments? Even if she goes to another company another day, she, she will be there and, and have that knowledge. So we, we expanded to female-owned and female-led. And then we were still stuck at, okay, how do we get more women? And so by 2018, 2019, we expanded the scope. And we, so we said, look, let's consider that criteria as well. Because in, at the end of the day, it's still a sort of genderless impact. If your team and your management um, are more, you know, at least 55% women. And, and that, that attracted a number of good deals to us. They didn't meet the criteria in terms of the, the gender um, or, or management, right? But what, what they had was 
I think about 80, 80 or 85% of, the, of their team, the workers were women. And they were providing a service that had a gender lens. And so the, the investment committee said, look, we cannot say we're closing the gender funding gap. And because it's not female-owned or female-led, these are uh, products and services that, are, that have a gender lens. So, so, you know, over the years it has evolved. So we have female-owned, female-led, gender-diverse team and management, or if you're providing a service or that um, caters with a gender lens. So, so that has framed what our investment philosophy is. Um, to date, we have um, female-owned, female-led as uh, 57% of our portfolio. And the remaining are, are a mixture. That's how we have metamorphosized to, to date. Do you have any other criteria when you think about um, your investment approach and, and sort of the impact that you want Rising Tide to have? Do you, do you employ, employ any other criteria across your investment decision process? Yes. Um, I mean, from beginning, it was um, tech and tech enabled. We're sector agnostic. But we found in the beginning that we're spending a lot of energy on ideation and really looking for what really was early stage investing. And so our own early stage, as we define it, is if you are a post-revenue and you have some level of traction, you know, and, and, and so we, we, we look at that. And, and then uh, more recently, we have begun to look at businesses that solves a problem for the larger um, for the larger community right so in terms of impact and so in our last cohort we added a model for sustainability ESG and impact to to the education um, portfolio, um, curriculum this sort of evolution of your investment theses really I think drives home at this tension that Aloho and I feel and are trying to expose and, and probe throughout this series, which is this question of what success looks like, right, in the context of closing the gender gap from a funding perspective. And, you know, I think it, it raises a, a few questions in my mind around if you're a female-only network investing in only female founders, and, you know, I think the definition of what you invested in has evolved, but to what extent does the solution also lie in you know, if we want to build a network of female angels, should they be investing more broadly beyond just in, you know, through a gender lens? And on the flip side, are the companies that are coming through your, your pipeline and that you're mentoring, should they also be raising from, you know, a wider pool of angels and, and investors that are not necessarily investing from a gender lens perspective? So how do you think about that scope in the context of, the goal, which is to close the funding gap. So one of the things that we do is, if 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 you uh, if you meet our investment criteria, female or female lender, we're closing the gender gap. One of the things that we do is to co-invest. So we extend it to other networks on the continent and say, we've done this. This is our investment memo. We are putting in this amount. Are you interested? So some of our deals are co-investments. Now, lessons learned in terms of co-investment, if I may digress a bit, is that when we're looking at exits, some people don't want to exit at the time. There are other conditions and things. So from signing the same term sheets, 
we are now at a place where, okay, Rising Tide is investing this. This is term sheets. You can come and invest, but please, even if we are co-investing, do your own term sheets so that we are able to exit. Now that we're looking for exits, we're seeing a lot of things with hindsight, right, that we would otherwise not have done. So, so having said that, yes, that, that is one of the ways in which we are sort of closing the gender funding gap, even though we don't have enough of the, of the funding. And so that goes to speak to also your, your question about whether I would get a land which is full of men to invest as well. The, the founder doesn't really care, really, or whether, or whether who the investors are, whether they have a gender lens or not. All they want is they have to raise the funds. So, um, so we're doing more of that, you know, and, um, and we're, we're, we're now seeing the ticket size. The other thing that we did was uh, work with um, Iban on the catalytic fund. And so uh, follow on round for one of our deals, we, we tried to get the times 3x from Iban on the catalytic fund and, and so it made up a pool of of their funds yeah so what does what does success really mean really is 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 i i mean if we if we start to define in terms of um target um we would lose ourselves but if we start to measure really uh we've we've done two point something million dollars right and and over 34 investments that for us, from where we're coming from, is an element of success. So we have closed the gender funding gap by this. We've increased the number of women that are in angel investing. So it, it, it's, 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 for us, it's about measurement, right? So we're not going to put a target and say, if we hit $5 million, then we're successful. I, I think it is by the iterations of, of what we're doing in the ecosystem that we're going to be able to measure our success the definition of success evolves necessarily over time, right? I, I read a recent interview. You're, it sounds like you're thinking a lot about exits. You've talked about it a couple of times in, in this conversation, right? So while it may be an initial goal to unlock more capital for, for women founders and to bring more angels in, you know, certainly from an angel perspective as well, they're expecting a return on their investment. And obviously there's a question of time horizon. So maybe the, the next definition of success maybe needs to be something around exits some, some exits, capital. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at the trends and patterns, those that we invested in earlier are coming back for follow-on rounds and um, top-up funds and, you know, bridge loans and things like that. And we did, um, we, we did about five. Then we're saying to ourselves, look, we now said, okay, maybe it's time for us to have a follow-on vehicle, right? And um, so we're working towards a $10 million. We want to do a proof of concept. Now, from my from our 34 deals, we're going to say TLCOM or uh, Alithia. Which ones are you interested in? That if you think that if they grow uh, in the next one year, you would want to invest in. By so doing, we would select not only from within Rising Tide, but other female or, um, or gender lens um, um, startups that have been invested by net other networks. And we will select based on, you know, um, those maybe five, 10, I don't know how much 10 million would do to give them that um, top of fund of their 700, 800. So I focus on the business and stop going around the whole place. We see that as our own opportunity to also exit. 
while we are building those that will be interesting for the visas um, to, to offtake. So, so that's our next ambition, <laughs> if I may say so, of, of what we want to do. I wanted to come back to the question. So it's a $10 million vehicle, but fundamentally it allows you to, um, to create exit pathways. But also, I suppose, you know, when you think about the journey of female founders often, you know, that, that series A or pre-series A is also sometimes where they get stuck. So it's potentially sort of a very interesting place to, to, to deliver some impact as well. One thing you've talked about, even in, in the framework that you described, you talked about Alethea, you talked about TLCOM as potentially being people who you then sort of work with to help you decide which companies or what profile of companies to focus on. And then earlier when you were describing the investment criteria as well, um, you talked about technology and technology-enabled businesses. Um, this question comes back to the tension that Justin was, was describing as we talk to people and we try and understand a little bit better how they're thinking about their different gender lens frames. Um, as I say to myself, and you know that I'm a big venture capital tech person, so it's a little bit of a, I'm curious <laughs> yes. in your perspective, so I'm a believer. But I say to myself, why tech and tech enabled necessarily like talk to me about sort of why that is such a big focus for you because there are many smaller businesses smes female run great entrepreneurs also looking for capital so, so you know you start from what you know right so yeah, this fair. is what is our majority of our <laughs> of our portfolio mm -hmm. however it's as if you have seen our deck one of the things that that um we are we have seen really are these women that are not tech and tech enabled? A lot of them, right? They're doing good businesses, but that they need that chunk of money, right? In terms of whether manufacturing or um, production line processing, they, they need that chunk of money. And we have said that we're going to um, a mark, I, I don't know whether it's 10 or 20% for them to try and test the market because this it's a long play, right? But why we want to t test with a smaller is because a lot of the VCs are looking at tech and tech enabled. They're not really trying to play in that SME space, right? And so we don't want to get stuck in, you know, funding them and then it becomes a problem for us down the line. So we're going to do a, a, a you know, sort, sort of test because... A lot of times, these companies don't go for Series A, Series B, right? They just need that chunk of money. And then they, they plow back into their business and they use it to grow. Um, and so, so that's the difference between the two. So we're, com we're coming. <laughs> for each episode of this series, my co-host Eloho Amame and I sat down for a retrospective conversation to reflect on the insights shared by our episode guests. It is quite interesting. There's an abundance of research that shows that, you know, there are positive or above average outcomes when you invest in women founders. Yeah. And despite that, we're still only at 2%, right? So let's start like right at the beginning, okay. angels. And I have a question for you first. First check, do you guys consider yourself an angels fund? Like you have LPs, right? Yes. Okay. But but it started it started as like a group of angels. It started as two angels, Audrey and I. Okay, <laughs> it yeah. started as our money, yeah. and so we started off talking about First Check as an angel fund, and it started off that way. Honestly, we made an assumption that was just proven wrong very very quickly, which was that no one would be interested in talking to us about a female focused tech specific 
pre-seed fund. Meaning right? LPs, no LPs would be? No LPs at the level. So f- or the other thing we wanted to do was, you know, really keep it micro, right? So mm-hmm. could it be sub $10 million or so of capital? And how do we kind of get this thing off the ground relatively quickly? So we both said, look, we could allocate some amount of capital from our own sort of personal balance sheets to doing this. We would probably move a little bit quicker. We don't need to sort of go through the journey of trying to convince, convince pe- the people that the thesis made sense. We also were both sitting there as women, right? One is a founder, the other is an investor saying, I think I'm pretty backable, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so why not? But the false assumption there was that people wouldn't also sort of believe the thesis very easily. And people did. And people did, like we literally had people, you know, founders for the most part, but people come to us very quickly on, very shortly after we announced saying, where do I send my check? I, I want to be an LP. And so we did a small test. We call it a beta fund. And so we do have LPs in that. The other thing that we have, of course, is the sort of $2 million co-investment commitment with TLCom as well. That's a pool of capital we invest out of. And the reason that we also didn't, I guess, face or didn't have a lot of resistance to the idea of taking in outside capital was we really think that the thesis makes a lot of sense to your point around the performance, et cetera. But also, you know, you look at the the 2% and you say, this isn't enough. You look at the performance and you say, these outcomes could be actually be really interesting. You look at as a fund and you have a strategy and you say to yourself, no one else is really kind of focused here. I can be kind of differentiated. And frankly, I, I believe in this stuff. I think it's fun. So there was an opportunity to then have additional capital to sort of pursue that strategy. And so it didn't take, honestly, there wasn't a lot of convincing to do it, yeah. to end up kind of creating a fund. Was there at any point in your journey an attempt to crowd in capital from other angels? To, as co-investors? No? No. <laughs> the reason why I ask that question is because my primary takeaway in speaking to Yemi is she's doing all of this work with an angel community. Yeah. And it seems really hard. Yeah. Right? And so there's a question about, I certainly believe that obviously, you know, the extent to which women will back women, it's important work. And how much do we need in the ecosystem more women angels to write those first checks at the beginning, or maybe that's also a role for first check to play, right? And I guess what I would say there is, is a couple of things. The first is we need more capital for women. I personally, I'm pretty indifferent as to whether that capital is is, is from female, is from women or men, right? Okay. It's one of these things again where sort of it's two percent, right? So two percent needs to go to ten yeah, percent we'll needs to go to something. We we'll take get, everything yeah. we can get. The other side of that equation, though, is something around a wealth effect, right? Um, in a world in which you have these networks. Venture capital ultimately is an access game to, to a large extent, right? You can't invest in stuff that you don't see. Um, and so you find different investors at the angel level, at the, as the institutional level, effectively kind of differentiated competing against their ability to access quality deal flow, right? Because you want, you want that, you need that. That's how you sort of ultimately have any hope of generating a, an outsized return or a, a better return than the next guy or girl. So. There's also something around a wealth and distribution effect that says it makes sense to also say, look, if there are people who can write these checks who don't have access to it, let's also give them a pathway to to deploy it. It's also one of these things that's a little bit circular, and I think it came through in the conversation also with Yemi, whereby she was saying in going on this journey, they also thought about the fact that the disposable incomes for sort of female HNIs is a little bit lower, um, and so they had to sort of think about what's investable and that kind of thing. I remember I spent a bit of time about two years ago just in general in this sort of personal finance space thinking about personal investment portfolios and how to think about how I might advise a woman versus a man. And I spent a bit of time looking at the data around wealth in Africa, right, and how it's distributed. Well, I think if you talk to fund managers, they'll say to you that you probably should not be investing in 
a venture asset in the venture asset class as a whole if certain things are not in place first, right? A good amount of savings, some exposure to more liquid liquid instruments, some exposure to safer instruments, etc. With some some level of pro- pro- progression within your portfolio and some level of allocation, right? And so I'm torn in two different directions when I think about this question of women investing in venture as an asset class. I also think it's important, as you would advise anybody who's any sort of H&I who's looking to sort of build a portfolio and allocate it, you would say, well, let's also talk about what else is going on in your portfolio as a fund manager, mm-hmm. right? And whether or not you can afford to invest in venture because it's a risky asset class. Mm-hmm. There was something that came up in that conversation as well, whereby she said, as the network has grown, we're increasingly sort of having to then grapple with this question of, of exits and liquidity, which is fair, but also you say to yourself, you're an angel, you probably need to kind of understand that with a lot of those, you probably won't see a return of capital and you're really four years into this to this journey. To me, that also spoke to this question around who has the capacity to invest in venture as an asset class and, mm-hmm. and how do we sort of encourage some of this participation but do it in a way that is sustainable. Yeah, and maybe the takeaway for me actually is there is this perception generally that you know, it's going to be women that back other women. And mm-hmm. you just talked about where the capital comes from, what gender it comes from, it doesn't really matter. But mm-hmm. in the context of a very nascent angel ecosystem with a lot of questions about what the returns will look like, is it almost like an unfair burden to put on to women to say, we want you specifically to increase that 2% number? Yeah, I think where that comes from is a little bit from almost like a, an assumption, and, and, and it probably is based, of course, on some level of, of feedback, but an assumption that the men aren't interested, yeah. right? Where you accept that men are never going to sort of believe in this mm-hmm. investment thesis. And if you don't think that it is a failure of the outcomes or the potential of the companies, then you kind of land in a place of, of kind of bias, right? Yeah. I don't know how true that is. I think anybody who is kind of a, a reasonable, thoughtful, investor looks at the outcomes and isn't really that fussed about whether or not the entrepreneur is is female or male. I think though, we don't have enough stories about sort of female technology entrepreneurial success. We need more of them. Mm -hmm. Those will take time. Those are constrained by the 30 to 50 million of capital that comes into the ecosystem for, do you know what I mean? So it's many, many things. I personally, when I think about the reason I'm most optimistic about all of this work is because I know that there's a flywheel effect. We will get there. It'll take a bit of time to get that flywheel going. But when it does get going, all the other things we talk about around the companies outperforming, the diversity kind of having a, a performance dividend, all of those things will kind of, you know, will, will show themselves in the outcomes. Yeah.